this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. And a lot of these people end up not having a better second idea than they had the best first idea. And I'm very conscious of, of that fact that it might very well be that Basecamp was the best idea that Jason and I, at least from a commercial perspective, ever had. <laughs> Hello, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. We are based in Sydney, Australia. It is a little bit of a gloomy day in Sydney, Australia, which is unusual for this time of year. We've been having a beautiful, sunshining, heat-wavy weather. I hope wherever you are in the world, um, you are... Um, having a little bit better weather. It is, um, if you're listening, you're watching us live on Periscope, it is Wednesday, the 1st of February, 2017. If you're listening to this, um, on your podcast recorder, um, we've published this on Friday, the 3rd of February, 2017. We, um, try to come to you every Friday. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Boy, do we have a fantastic guest on the show today for you. Um, David, Hanemeyer Hansen, who um, is the creator of Ruby on Rails. He's also um, the co-founder of Basecamp, um, super smart thinker. I had a chat to him last week, and we went all over the place talking about um, entrepreneurship, um, tech leadership, and politics, and all sorts of um, um, relevant discussion. That's coming up later on in the show, my chat with um, David Hanemeyer Hansen from Basecamp. Um, as usual, we touch on some of the tech news. Before then, we'll just um, remind you of some of the previous podcasts. A couple of podcasts um, ago, we had a guest, um, uh, John Demartini, a performance specialist. Last week, we had um, Sujan Patel talking about content marketing. There's so much going on at the moment. <laughs> my poor mind just can't keep up. And of course, I haven't even introduced my co-host, <laughs> Kate Propel, digital, uh, the, sorry, not the design leader, manage Flutter. Every week I want to tweak your, your title. Thank you for joining uh, me on the podcast as usual. No problems. Good to be back again. Um, so let's get straight into it, Kate. Some interesting um, news. We don't often talk about WhatsApp, um, but of course WhatsApp is that uh, um, incredibly successful and well-used chat service. I have yet to meet someone who doesn't use WhatsApp, at least in Australia and America. Um, of course, it was founded independently and then uh, Facebook got hold of it and bought it. As and in 2014? I think somewhere around there for yeah. a lot of money, for like $20 billion or something. And they were almost not making um, – WhatsApp was almost not making any money at the time. And uh, there's a famous tweet by one of the founders of WhatsApp where um, he went for a job interview. Um, it was either Twitter or Facebook. And he tweeted before his job interview and after the job interview and, and mentioned he didn't get the job. And then okay. he went and he joined um, the startup. So, um, yeah, WhatsApp has come a, a long way. And, of course, he landed up with with, with um, a lot of uh, yeah. financial success. So, um, but there's... Um, I believe he still works at Facebook, though. He's on the board. He's, yeah, he's on the board of Facebook and he's uh, still involved with WhatsApp. Yeah. Let's chat about WhatsApp. It's actually in the news this week because it's... Um, there's uh, stories coming out that they actually might – they're testing a new feature where if you send someone a message and they haven't yet read it, 
you can retract that message. So all those drunken texts, angry texts, yep. accidental, <laughs> emotional texts, if they haven't read it, you can yank it back. But of course, that's not, it's not live yet. They're still testing it. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, great for those um, accidental where you send it to the wrong person. <laughs> you need to get it back. And there used to be, in the old days of email, if you were like on a corporate network, you could actually recall it. Okay. So if you were in the same company. I believe you still can on um, emails now. If I think if you're on the same network, if you're sort of maybe in the corporate network, um, you definitely can't do it externally. There's absolutely no ways you can do it externally. No. I mean, uh, once before we, we chatted about uh, Gmail integrating something like that or they were talking about it anyway. So yeah, it might it be worth having a look into. I, I, I guess if Gmail did it amongst – if someone else was on Gmail or something, you know, that would oh, be potentially, yeah, that would be possible. But, um, so what else? So, any, any news on when this feature is going live? Uh, they're not too sure at the moment, speculating a couple of weeks, and that's being hopeful. But there's a few other things that they're also testing, uh, one of them being a moving location feature for groups. So, if you have a group of friends that you chat to in a group message, uh, you can share your exact location with them for five minutes which will help if you're meeting up and sort getting of auto- together. Automatically, right? You'll just Inside WhatsApp. You'll just, push a, you'll just push a button and it will just... Share my location. Share your location automatically. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's some privacy concerns, but I think the, the five-minute limit is sort of eliminating it a little bit. So it, it shares the location for five minutes and then it's what self-destructs or... Yep, or just shop, stop uh, sharing your location with your friends. And, yeah. of course, um, they still don't make money directly on WhatsApp, right? There's no, no I mean, I think they, no... before Facebook bought them, then they charged like a dollar a year. Yeah, and now like Facebook don't charge at all. Yeah. So it's completely 100% free. Yeah. I, w- I wonder what Facebook's uh, longer-term sort of view is of WhatsApp or just eventually integrating it somehow with Messenger. I mean, Messenger is one of their big players and they're doing all sorts of things with messenger the whole time you can messaging play is a huge um like industry now in itself i mean another one other thing that whatsapp are testing now are a similar idea to snapchat where you put like a, a photo status that expires within 24 hours if they push that through it'll be whatsapp messenger instagram and snapchat that all do basically the same thing yeah in terms of a 24 hour photo status i think that and i actually hope the internet moves towards this ephemeral type um, sort of approach um, a lot more because I think it makes a huge amount of sense. I'm surprised Facebook ad- hasn't actually – well, I'm not surprised because I can understand why they don't want content to disappear from Facebook. But even with Facebook status updates, it makes a huge amount of sense if you set an expiry time on it, right, for um, – you know, they do it on Facebook Live. They let you set an expiry time on Facebook Live. So just after two days, it just deletes the video, which makes a lot of sense. But it would be great to have that on the the posts as well. So it makes sense that a lot of them are getting into it. There's a use case for having different, I mean, I mean, different context in different platforms, if you know. I mean, if they all are ephemeral, then somebody's going to want something that lasts a bit longer, you know. And your audience traditionally on Facebook are... Well, everyone. So everyone you come across, you basically going to befriend on Facebook, at least in my experience. Whereas Snapchat is probably, you know, a younger demographic or people your own age, in which case you'll share things that might not offend an older audience. Mm-hmm. 
So the stuff you share on Snapchat isn't necessarily the stuff that you'd want to share on Facebook. But yeah. if they all become the same, then I don't know that there's a – I don't know that what the appeal is. It's Look, they, they, they're fighting for share of the same markets and, you know, there were some other figures that came out this week that Instagram stories has put a dent in Snapchat – yeah, and Snapchat are going to list soon, and it's it's competitive out there. There's there's only so much headspace. There's only so many hours you can spend on a social media network, and if you're going to spend more time on Instagram, it means you're going to spend less time on Snapchat, which or less time on Twitter, or less time on Facebook. Facebook at the moment have the lion's share of it, of course, owning Instagram and WhatsApp. Very smart of them. Very. I mean, even if I think about myself in the last couple of weeks, I've become much more interested in the Instagram stories than Snapchat. Have like my uh, daily login of Snapchat, I guess, is a lot lower now because I mean, all my friends that are on Snapchat are also on Instagram, if not more of them. I believe it's been executed in incredibly well on um, on Snapchat and stuff. It's very easy making it in. But this WhatsApp feature, it'd be interesting to see what happens with. WhatsApp there. Some other interesting news stories. There's um, some new technology that's uh, – this is pretty interesting and I'm, I'm fascinated by, by all of this. There's a new temporary tattoo type of technology. Now, it's not, it's not like a tattoo. It's not ink. It's more electrodes. It's more like an electronic circuit that is like a temporary tattoo that you put on your – that gets sort of put on your skin and actually works as a sensor – right? Yep. And it actually bends and shapes with your skin. It's not even wafer thin. It's almost, it, it it, it's like a sticker almost, right? <laughs> 0.3 nanometers right? plus a 463 nanometer polymer support. Right. So I don't know how much a nanometer is, but I'm sure it's pretty small. <laughs> and of course, linked to that story actually is that, I, I mean, what I find so interesting about that is the, the whole quantified self of tracking and monitoring. One of the challenges is you, you can't really wear devices. You can't be covered in devices and you know no. tracking on headsets and on wrists and heart rate monitors. And but if they that thin and they that almost invisible, you can sort of have quite a few plastered on you, right? You wouldn't even notice it. It's sort of like sort of like a um, band aid almost. It's even thinner than a band aid. Yeah. I mean, the point would be, would you have multiple or could you just have one? You probably could just have one. Yeah, and you can, we'll put it on the, a link on the show notes as always um, and you'll be able to um, see a photo of, of how discreet it is. It's, it's, it's more discreet than a Band-Aid actually. It's, yeah. It's, you just Apparently see it. it's quite powerful too, like just as powerful as the bulky headsets that we use today. Right, the bulky headsets for? Uh, any type of scanning uh I've got an EKG sensor. EKGs or ECG. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the ECG is the one they use for the heart. And, of course, tied in with that is a story that came out this week that there's some monitoring in a similar type of sensor. I don't think it's as discreet. No. But that monitors you for your hydration levels, right? Mm-hmm. So they're designed to tell you when you're about to face heat stress, a.k.a. dehydration. And apparently there are some sensors like that already, but they $10,000. They incredibly yeah. sort of they not for sure. sports people. I think people the production or, cost is about 8000 or eight to 10000 but these ones are so small they could be a dollar. Yeah, and it's, and, and it's actually something that as people get older, your mechanism for thirst 
actually stops working, right? That's why so many old people, older people have dehydration issues. You see a lot of older people end up in hospital yeah. with dehydration, etc. And they're always saying, drink, drink. I remember with my both of my grandmothers used to say that, you know, they went through phases where you had to just say, are you Force drinking? Drink. You know, <laughs> because that, so, you know, even things like that would be yeah. really useful, especially if it gets to a critical stage and for sports people that are optimizing performance. And even, you know, in Australia where we get these heat waves, the body doesn't have time to adapt and people suddenly start getting these migraines and things like that and dehydration is definitely an issue so but but it's interesting that we can start to monitor such you know highly individual calibrated aspects of um, our body's sort of activity right yeah i mean i think the barrier for some of these or at least the the tattoo one we mentioned earlier is that they aren't uh, speaking directly with our mobile devices yet right but it's not far away Right, because they've got to put some kind of antenna on them. Yeah, it needs something a Bluetooth, right? Which yeah. would bulk it up. Yep. And if and that and that would defeat the whole purpose. So yeah, but you need to be able to read it yourself. So I think yeah. it, that's necessary step is to get it integrated. I mean, we've spoken about this before on the podcast. How in in many ways medicine is incredibly advanced. If you are unfortunate enough to fall off a bicycle and break limbs, the surgery can put you together amazingly. But the the diagnosis side seems seems to be a little bit archaic. That we have to you know go to a special place with a special room and put a needle in you and take some liquid out of you, and you can only get a snapshot in time. And it's not you know there just seems to be so much room for you know innovation on this side of things so it's it's exciting to see that it is happening and maybe you just need a coming together of a few different technologies that will really you know create a whole new baseline like an iphone equivalent you know when the iphone came out suddenly the smartphones yeah. had arrived and we just need something like that with on the medical side of things so that we don't need to be going for blood tests it's just dynamically monitored and we get a ping we get a notification on our phone that says hey your b12 levels are dropping deal with it go eat some spinach or something much more proactive i'm really looking forward as someone that tries to optimize my health and productivity it's it would be absolutely fantastic so um, yeah i mean it's sort of another step from what we're doing now in tracking our fitness and you know like having gps's in our watches and phones and uh, how far we've gone how many calories we've burned like it's sort of that next step it's a next step yeah and of course all sorts of other data we're creating embedded into all of that. And it can even track some of these levels with your productivity, perhaps, you know, if we track everything in, in Jira and, and a number of emails you sent, and you can start seeing these interesting trends on days where I'm more dehydrated, my productivity drops and, and, and can maybe even automatically start surfacing these trends for you. You know, the dream is when everything's linked in together and talks to each other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to be able to, I guess, collect facts that were directly relevant to you as an individual would be incredibly beneficial. I mean, all these articles come out all the time about, you know, 10, 10 best ways to be productive and how to improve your morning routine. And it all sounds amazing, but it's not going to work for everyone. Yeah, yeah. If you could track and try and test and trial, then you could actually find what was the best method for you. Yeah, no, look, it's it's exciting times and this technology really needs to evolve a lot more. But every step along the way is uh, a step to the iPhone equivalent of uh, medical 
tracking and diagnosis. Anyway, you're listening to um, the It's a Monkey podcast. We put together a entertaining and conversational hour or so. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Uh, we chat a little bit about tech news. We chat, uh, always try to find a thought leader to talk about a topic relating to entrepreneurship, startups, economics, personal growth. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to play the chat I had with David Hanemeyer Hansen, the CTO of Basecamp and uh, the creator of Ruby on Rails. Um, so just uh, stick around and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, this is Dave from Manage Flitter. Are you interested in growing your Twitter account with real followers who are within your target audience? Manage Flitter's Power Mode feature provides pro and business users with powerful search functionality. You can search for keywords within tweets or Twitter bios and even find accounts that follow your competition on Twitter. Once you have selected a search, you can take advantage of our expansive filtering options to ensure that you only follow the highest quality Twitter accounts. Using the Power Mode feature on Manage Flitter will also ensure that the follows you perform are not wasted on fake or spam accounts. Get the necessary tools to grow your Twitter account by signing up for Manage Flitter Pro or Business. Go to manageflitter.com for more info or email our support team at contact at manageflitter.com with any questions. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. On the show, we talk about tech, we talk about startups, we talk about entrepreneurship, but most importantly, we talk with thought leaders in our industry. And I'm very excited to say that I have David Hanemeyer Hansen on the show with me today. David is the creator of Ruby on Rails, founder and CTO of Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, best-selling author, Le Mans class-winning race driver, public speaker, hobbyist photographer, and family man. David, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. And you are coming from uh, Spain today, right? Yes, Mabea, Spain. Very, very lovely. Um, David, um, you've written a couple of uh, medium articles that you know have gotten a, a lot of readership. One of the articles that you wrote was uh, titled Reconsider. And um, I'm just going to read a, a, a quick short section of that where you write, part of the problem seems to be that nobody these days is content to merely put their dent in the universe. No, they have to f- fucking own the universe. It's not enough to be in the market. They have to dominate it. It's not enough to serve customers. They have to capture them. What's interesting in reading your title is that I think um, I think you're putting a little bit more than a dent in the universe, which is sort of ironic. Well, I don't know about that, but what I do hope with, or hope to do with that post was to inspire other entrepreneurs to look beyond the predominant paradigm for startups right now, which is completely dominated by venture capitalist methods and goals. And those methods and goals are summarized in that paragraph you just wrote, that when a venture capitalist invests in a startup, they need to have someone that dominates the market. They need to have someone that captures all the customers. They aren't just content with a small little dent. No, it has to be full ownership because that's the only economic model that works for them. When you make uh, 10 investments of of many millions of dollars and, and you expect that only one of them is going to make it out, that one that makes it out, that unicorn that needs to be forged has to be spectacular. And that spectacularity it can only be achieved when you have that sort of complete control over a market, as you've seen with Facebook and Google and the other smash hits that have uh, sustained the venture capitalist industry for so long. And I'm just saying, hey, wait a minute. 
just because this is the method that uh, sustains a venture capitalist model, that shouldn't be the paradigm that all startups operate under. There's so many other different ways to make that smaller, perhaps, a dent in the universe, make a smaller company that nonetheless provides a great product at a fair price that enriches all of us, enriches uh, customers and the people making the product and so forth, and doesn't just serve this small cabal of, of money lenders um, and their interests. So I'm trying to, to some extent, break the spell that venture capitalists have cast over the whole startup ecosystem, and that includes the media as well. Um, I think it's unfortunate that this uh, whole model, the whole VC model from, from seed funding and onwards, have so captured the imagination of uh, the media and the people who follow that, that this is seen as the only option that startup equals this path of, of financing and this path of success. And I wanted to just use my own example with Basecamp as a, as a company that was absolutely a startup, um, operated in the same sphere as many of these other venture capitalist startups, yet chose to go a completely different route and ended up in a completely different place that was nonetheless extremely attractive and that I think that uh, most startup entrepreneurs just simply don't really recognize or know about. What's really interesting is here in Australia, we've, uh, we don't have a very sophisticated um, early stage VC industry. It is improving the whole time. But a lot of companies here have had to go a similar route to what Basecamp went to, where you take Campaign Monitor, you take Atlassian. They only took money very, very late in the game because uh, we haven't had much of a choice here. We, we, we're not sitting in Silicon Valley in New York. We're not from um, Harvard and Yale. And uh, we just have to get going and, and do it whatever way we can. What a, what a blessing. What a blessing to be outside of that uh, eco chamber. What a blessing to be outside of that bubble. I think it's, uh, I mean, it shouldn't detract from that large success that then uh, later on these companies chose to, to still dip into the same money pool. Um, I think it's wonderful that uh, Australia was able to incubate these companies and, and get them to such a stage and level of success without these um sort of organizational structures that you have in Silicon Valley. In many ways, that's a similar story of Basecamp. Uh, not so much because we couldn't, as in we tried and we failed, but that we chose to start the company outside of uh, Silicon Valley. Basecamp hails from Chicago. It hails from Copenhagen, Denmark. It hails from all over the place where we have remote workers. But the foundation of the company was outside of this traditional startup scene. And I think we're all the better off for it. I once tweeted uh, Mark Andreessen, um, the famous um, founder and uh, VC in, in Silicon Valley, and um, I said to him, you, you know, can you tell me which companies have had uh, super success without VC funding? And, and he actually tweeted, he said, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any, but he tweeted out one. It was some enterprise um, sort of networking company. I can't remember the name. So um, they very, very, I mean, that, that narrative, that model, in, it, it's in a way, it's in a way it's worked for them, or the people it's worked for, it's worked for. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I think that there's lots of people that hasn't worked for at all, and I think that that story needs to be told far more often. It hasn't worked for public markets to a large extent. Uh, lots of these companies have been foisted onto the public markets long after they've peaked. 
um, and we've seen everywhere from Groupon to Singa and, and so forth, where you have this uh, incredible hype mobile that comes out of Silicon Valley, where it's sort of the sky's the limit and, and everything is going to end up uh, this titan that owns entire industries. And then, of course, lots of them falter and, and fall on their face. And, and in the wake of that, um, tons of people end up being heard of that uh, because the growth was simply on an unsustainable path. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when Groupon, the uh, daily deals business, actually, funnily enough, out of Chicago, but very much in the Silicon Valley mold, um, originally programmed to the scene, the whole story was about this was the fastest growing company in the history of uh, of business or whatever. They were the first company that got to a billion dollars within no time at all. And the growth alone became a story of, of success as though that was some sort of final destination we should all cheer for that the best thing that could happen to companies and the world in general is that we uh, balloon these companies up at a completely unsustainable pace through all sorts of steroid injections of of hundreds of millions of dollars buying uh, less than hundreds of millions of value Uh, i think it's just completely perverted and i think we need a, a new narrative a new structure, new goals, and new role models to some extent for what is a successful startup, what are some of the different paths that startups can take. I think it's very telling that you say Andreessen couldn't name any other companies that have had quote-unquote success, and of course he couldn't, because the companies that he looked at as success are the companies that provided those 10 or 100x returns for VC founders, uh, which... I mean, is is that the measure we want to hold all companies to? Is that what we should look at for the definition of what success is? I think absolutely not. It serves this, again, small group of moneylenders. And what they view as success, we've somehow uh, accepted as a industry and as a media that, oh, that's just what we should clone. We should clone their language. We should clone their status of success. And I'm just saying, no, we shouldn't. There's a, a better and broader perspective on both business and living and working and success that uh, both founders and employees and customers would be very well served to pay more attention to. Do you consider um, Atlassian a competitor of sorts? Or, I mean, do you also release any metrics about Basecamp? You're a private company. You don't need to. There's various core articles that try to reverse engineer what your revenue is and your customer base is. There was one interesting core article that tries to compare Atlassian versus base camp and and sort of tries to show that base camp is the margins are just based on the the, the number of employees is just um, it's stratospheric compared to atlassian i think they are i mean just through <laughs> sheer virtue of the fact that we have a a tiny company that have had uh, millions and millions of uh, people use our systems and and tens of hundreds of thousands of customers going through the the process the difference i think is that we can make uh, economic model work on a somewhat smaller scale right uh, so basecamp is 50 employees we don't have a sales force we don't have a marketing force we don't have a lot of his other uh, push machinery that shoves product in front of uh, customers. We don't have uh, mega enterprise deals. We don't try to sell uh, tens of thousands of seats. Uh, in fact, everyone pays the same price for Basecamp. It's $99 a month. That's it. That's all you can pay us. And that's by design, in large parts because we did not want to become 
a large company that required an enterprise sales force and so forth. But I don't even think that that's a very interesting comparison. Um, Atlassian and Basecamp and Trello and Asana and there's a bunch of companies that overlap to some extent and have uh, some part of their customer base that could use one product or the other. But in many ways, they're also quite different. Um, the kinds of companies that sign up for Jira or any of the other Atlassian products, uh, I think would, would tend to be more on the larger side of things. The, the kind of companies that enjoy to have account, key account managers and that kind of stuff where Basecamp just has a different model. We self-serve and we uh, sell directly to, to customers on, on their own behalf and they get to pay us $99 a month. There's just a, a different economic model and both of them are very valid. There's not that um, everyone needs to serve just a small and mid-sized business that we do at Basecamp, and it's not that everyone needs to, like Atlassian and others, chase a more enterprise-y um, part of the segment. Uh, all these customers need to be served, and it's wonderful that we can do it from different angles, and we can do it from different uh, value propositions, and, and there's that's great. I think the whole paradigm, actually, of, of this competitive native nature of um, okay there's there can be only one this highlander methodology of uh, selecting winners and losers in the market field is just simply outdated for a um, whole host of um, of industries and certainly collaborative communicative software is one of them there just aren't really any strong network effects in our business uh, if one company chooses to use Atlassian and another company chooses to use Basecamp so what? There's not really a lot of overlap. It's quite different from the consumer social network business that I think uh, has sort of overtaken the narrative of, of business storytelling for, for quite a while in tech, where if there's Twitter, then there's not also going to be app.net. If there's Facebook, there's not also going to be Orkut or Google+. Plus. Um, those industries do seem to be far more winner-takes-all, and thus that whole battle theme makes a lot more sense than it does for uh, something like communication software, collaboration software that just works within companies. So Atlassian bought Trello recently. Have they, um, have they ever made uh, an offer to buy you? <laughs> no, and <laughs> even if they did, we wouldn't be for sale. I think we've made that point uh, exceedingly loudly and uh, repetitively over the past 15 years. In the early days of Basecamp, we certainly had lots of suitor. I think at, at one point we counted uh, 45 inquiries from various venture capital firms in the first two years of the business. And then uh, over the next year or two, there were a, a series of uh, in positions from from potential suitors who wanted to acquire us but at this point i think we've made our point <laughs> very clear through articles like reconsiders and others that we're simply not for sale um and one of the key reasons that we're not for sale is that we've been profitable since day one not only have we been profitable we've been entirely sustainable and when you get to enjoy that level of freedom that comes from sustainable profitability over the long term it's just not very appealing to get bought out by some uh, corporate entity that, uh, of course, is going to set their own targets and dictate for how the business should be run. The amount of life satisfaction that you can derive from running your own show, saying what you want to say whenever you want to say it, and simply serve just your employees and your customers, it's just incredibly liberating. I don't think that there's a whole lot of people who've 
end up in that situation and then say, oh, yeah, I'm willing to trade all that for a new boss just so I can get a, another zero on my bank account. It just it just isn't that appealing. And I think a big reason for why that isn't appealing is the same argument that I make it and reconsider in other posts that – the difference for an, for an entrepreneur between having zero dollars in your bank account and having, let's say, one million dollars in a bank account is very, very large. The difference between having to, to check uh, the price in a restaurant and not caring about it at all is very large. The difference between having one million dollars and two million dollars in your bank account or five or ten or forty or a hundred is so much smaller. You can only sleep in one bed at a time and drive one car exactly. at a time, right? So differences in the things that you would have to give up to to chase that bigger pot of gold to get that extra zero on your bank account when you look at something like getting uh, acquired, it's just monumental. I spend still the majority of my day uh, working. I spend uh, eight hours a day or thereabouts, uh, 40 hours a week on base camp. And the amount of pleasure that I arrive from that, the amount of life satisfaction that comes out of that, of being commanders of our own ship and setting our own tone and saying what we want to say is just monumental. Uh, I think there's just a level of freedom that people vastly underestimate when they get uh, sort of blinded by the size of the check, that then when the check clears, they end up going like, oh, now I know what I missed. And I've talked to so many founders and so many entrepreneurs who've gone through that cycle of basically thinking, oh, isn't this wonderful? I get to get bought out by this fantastical sum. And then they spend three weeks on the beach and then they realize, oh, actually, I don't want to live the rest of my life just in leisure. What am I going to do now? And a lot of these people end up not having a better second idea than they had the best first idea. And I'm very conscience of, of that fact that it might very well be that Basecamp was the best idea that Jason and I, at least from a commercial perspective, ever had. So why wouldn't we ride that and enjoy that uh, for as long as we could? If we sell that out, we might very well find ourselves unable to uh, replicate or, or get to the same level as we were. And I think we'd be uh, worse off for it. There's also simply just the whole fact of, of going through the motions again. Um, I know plenty of people sort of, they arrive in their 30s and their 40s and they look longingly back at their 20s or their high school years or any moment in their past when they thought oh this was glory right and I think that there's plenty of entrepreneurs that kind of do the same oh I wish I could go back to those early days when we started the company and we didn't have a lot of money and we were just da 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 that's not me. I, I don't need to rewind the clock. I don't need to play the movie back over again. I've been through that phase. I've been through the phase of when we were three people, and I loved it. It was wonderful. And you know what? Now I like the phase where we're at now even better, and I don't want to rewind the clock. I want to keep going forward. In 2016, you, uh, 2006 rather, you did take some funding from Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Is that correct? We didn't take any funding because none of the money went into the business. What we did was that Jason and I sold a minority slice that had no control, no exit opportunities, no nothing directly to Jeff Bezos from each of our own slices. None of the money went into the company because the company has been profitable since day one and didn't need any money for growth. What Jason and I did was we took a bit of money off the table, which gave us the confidence to go the distance. Um, and that was in the, in the early days where the sort of economics of the company, they were promising and we were growing quickly and so forth. But as you know, like the risk was still there that all of this could end. And I think that that's 
perhaps the choice that a lot of entrepreneurs look at. They look at, oh, this thing is going well, really well right now, but I haven't really made any money yet and it could end tomorrow. Maybe it's better just to cash in all my chips and hand over the company to some corporate behemoth and, and then at least I know I can have some money in the bank. Well, Jason and I sort of looked at that and said, um, if we could just take a bit off the table, we could just take that bit, the first part of the equation, the zero to one million uh, jump off the table and still get to keep the full control of the company and not tie it to some venture capital time bomb that's going to go off in five to seven years. That's the optimal outcome. So that's what we looked at, and that's what we did. And I think it's been an extraordinarily successful model for both Jason and I and for Jeff Bezos. We paid him back five times over what he paid us 10 years ago, and he still owns the same slice of the company as he did back then. We paid the whole thing out through dividends of the company. I know it's such a quaint uh, notion that a company can be so profitable that it actually distributes its profits to its owners and that owners don't get rich solely through sort of equity uh, increases. But that's how we did it. And I think it's it's so funny that that model is seen as esoteric or weird that uh, founders can um, and owners can enrich themselves by simply running a profitable company over the long term. I think what's doubly funny about that is that the sort of predominant uh, oracle of business, um, um, like lots of these guys, they look at it in that way, right? Like if you can just own a company and hold it for the long term, uh, as Warren Buffett says, uh, then that's the place to be. But we've fallen into this short-term sell the joker to the next fool method of wealth creation that I think is just isn't healthy. Anyway, that's sort of <laughs> diverging from the topic. <laughs> tell, uh, tell us, uh, tell us what, what's Jeff Bezos like as a person? He's got a, a, a mythical um, status in our industry. He built up a company from um, 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 almost scratch. I, I think there was some funding involved. Um, they, they took an interesting approach with AWS in diversification, which was such a probably again, every business textbook to move away from their core value proposition and what's he like as a person to on some level work with absolutely fascinating and he's fascinating in many ways of course because he's the opposite of what jason and i am we didn't bring someone in that was just a more successful clone of ourselves we brought someone in who had a completely different perspective on it. Amazon itself has run for for decades without making any profits, um, yet has undeniably been very successful at what it is that they've done. Um, And I think that this incredible seal that Bezos has to continue to reinvest in the in the future is just fascinating to watch. Uh, I don't think it's a very general applicable model that most people should seek to emulate, but it's nonetheless just a wonderful thing to to watch the way he's uh, been able to do it, and, and we've learned a lot from it. One of the early meetings we had with uh, Jeff when we went over the business um, and we talked about, so what, what should we work on next and, and what should we pursue? 
he imparted on on us his quote about investing in things that don't change. Um, and he was talking about it in, in relation to Amazon when they were looking at, like, what can we invest in? Why are we investing billions and billions and billions of dollars in these distribution centers all over the place? Um, he said it in, in the sense of a customer is not going to wake up 10 years from now wishing, oh, I wish my packages from Amazon would arrive slower. I wish that I couldn't get my things as, as quickly as I can now, right? Like These are enduring modes of business that if you spend your resources investing in the things that don't change, those are going to pay off for the very long term. And we've looked at that in many ways at the business at Basecamp. For example, if we invest in fantastic customer service, is someone is a customer of ours going to say, oh, I wish um, it would take longer for Basecamp to get back to me on email? No, absolutely not. So we invested heavily in that and, and we've gone from what was in the early days, it might take a day or two to get back to a customer. Now we get back to customers within 10 minutes and often within one minute of them writing us an email. And that's that Incredible, kind of yeah. uh, moat around the business that is just incredibly powerful. And it's incredibly obvious as well. And you would think businesses with a lot more resources, somehow they, 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 they alienate themselves from, from the basics and the, the lack of empathy for the customer just seems to have disappeared. And then when business goes bad, they sometimes blame all sorts of things, whereas just, just the basics, right? At the end of the day, looking after the customer and having empathy for the, t- the customer sometimes is, is that simple. Exactly. I mean, we have a saying at Basecamp, uh, just execute the basics beautifully. And that goes for the design of the product and the number of features that you'd have to how you deal with customers and so forth. And I think the funny thing here is then doing so is actually much easier when you're a small company than when you are a big company. When you're a big company, you have multiple layers of management where it's kind of a game of telephone to pass these objectives around. When you have the big boss saying one thing, it gets translated or rather filtered and diluted through a couple of layers of management until it reaches the people who actually have to do the work. At Basecamp, there's Jason and I, and then uh, sometimes there's directly the person that just does all the work, and sometimes there's uh, one team lead and then the team that does the work. It's a very short hop from the objectives that we set and how we talk about the business and how we do the actual work of the business to, um, to the effects that you then see. Secondly, I think small companies are often, more often at least characterized by the constraints that they have to embrace. So they simply can't do everything. They can't um, try to add all the bells and whistles in the world. So they have to execute the basics beautifully simply throughout of uh, sheer constraint. And I think that embrace of constraints is exactly what we've um, so enjoyed over the years when we've said no to things, when we said no to expansions, when we said no no to ballooning the staff, when we said no to, to all sorts of things. Most recently in 2012, where we actually kind of went Benjamin Button on the business and shrunk it down from having four major products to just having one. Um, I think that was just one of those moves where you go like, wait, wh- what? You guys have four profitable growing businesses and you're choosing to divest yourself of three of them just to focus on one. Couldn't you just hire some more staff and grow a bigger company and wouldn't that be much better? Uh, sure, that, that's a path someone could have taken and we chose not to take that because we were interested in exactly that, executing the basics and, and having our attention on, on the one thing and doing that exceptionally well. David, 
Jeff Bezos was one of the tech leaders that was quite outspoken and had some public spats, for lack of a better word, with with Donald Trump. He was actually at the tech leaders meeting, I believe, where Sheryl Sandberg was there. Peter Thiel was there. Peter Thiel, of course, was one of the few Silicon Valley um, sort of figures that, that was very vocal about his support for Trump. If Trump invited you to that meeting as the CTO of a relatively significant company, would you have gone? I mean, as, what I love about these hypotheticals is that it's completely free to me for me to take the most <laughs> ideological they, viewer they're stance. They're safe, right? right? <laughs> they're safe. So I can very easily <laughs> say, no, absolutely not. I would have told the big orange orangutan to go fuck himself. But that's not really uh, sort of a, a, a reasonable choice, right? I, I can fully appreciate that the choice uh, the likes of uh, Bezos and Tim Cook and so on had to, to deal with and operate under was was slightly different, right? They're in the uh, in the bullseye a lot more for sort of the executive action that that a pissed off Trump can rain down upon them. Um, and I, though, again, I think another reason, right, to enjoy the fact of being a small company that doesn't show up on the radar of someone like Trump, that we can get to stand behind our principle in a in a much easier way right like i don't have 150,000 employees and i don't know millions of customers depending on me right i i have to protect the 50 people who work at basecamp and uh, and the few hundred thousands of customers that we have at, at basecamp that's a very different and an easier proposition to be so that's a big part of the appeal for me to to remain the small company that can thus stick to our principle in a, in an easier way. So you, you haven't given me a clear answer though. Well, no, I, I would, I, I don't see what uh, going to a meeting like that would, would do for us at all. And I can totally see what it would do for Trump uh, landing sort of uh, an appearance that the tech industry is bowing to him and, and growling in front of him for, for all sorts of reasons, whether that's tax breaks or repatriation of profits or whatever else have you. Uh, no, I mean, that, that's not something we stand to benefit nothing. And he stands to benefit uh, everything from, from that appearance and and i have absolutely zero interest in helping trump appear any more uh as our dear leader than than he already does elon musk is uh on some type of advisory board and and he was in an interview i think uh, over the last couple of days where when people were criticizing him from from you know opening dialogue with trump he said uh elon musk said are you aware of a single case where trump bowed to protests or media attacks better that there are open channels of communication so um you know do you not think that it's uh that for us for our industry to have people on the inside sort of overarches perhaps our our own sort of value systems and higher purpose and problems with with him and his leadership and his approach to people in life well i think Let's go to what uh, Musk himself said. Like, does Trump generally bow and yield to pressure or reason? No. So why do you think that just because you sit at the table, he's going to bow to your pressure or your reason? Uh, absolutely not. I That's think a good that point. In, in most cases, he's simply going to use that as uh, just another card in his deck for like, see, 
there are actually uh, legitimate uh, entrepreneurs and, and business people supporting me, right? Like you can spin uh, any photo op at a table as, as Musk is on Team Trump. And why would you want to lend him that legitimacy when your odds of actually altering the course of his actions is so faint? That doesn't seem like a, a good play to me. And not to go full Goodwin on it, but uh, I think that appeasement strategy um, isn't the wisest. Maybe that's a, a wise move on, on North Korea when they sit on uh, nuclear launch codes that can annihilate South Korea. But um, I don't think that that really applies in this situation. So uh, this calamity that uh, Trump might uh, exact on the world I don't think you're going to be the the bit that changes that one way or the other. I think that through his actions and through his campaign, he's clearly shown that not only does he have zero loyalty to the people who, who actually stomp for him or growl for him, um, he just does whatever the fuck he wants. So if, if you're at that table uh, appearing as his advisor, you're then also complicit for the actions that he chooses to take. So if you have a seat at that table, then you must also own the actions that come out of it. Uh, and I don't think Musk is interested in owning most of the actions that uh, come out of the Trump administration. I don't think any reasonable person would be. You had quite a public Twitter discussion with Sam Altman from Y Combinator. And of course, Peter Thiel is a part-time partner at Y Combinator. And you had a, a, quite a public discussion with Sam Altman about how Y Combinator should take Peter Thiel to task for being such an outspoken sort of supporter of Trump. Where, where do you stand on it now? Do you, still, do you still maintain that they should have done something or should still do something? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's completely hypocritical of both Sam Altman and, and Paul Graham to be these champions of how horrible Trump is. Uh, the language that both uh, Sam, the whole thing started with Paul Graham, but then Paul Graham blocked me after we had a, a few back and forth on Twitter. So the discussion moved to Sam Altman. Um, but that both of them were sort of echoing this end of the world narrative for if Trump becomes president, uh, Sam Altman has uh, also to quote saying, oh, there are some terrible parallels here to the 1930s and uh, basically insinuating that this is uh, uh, the next coming of, of Hitler. And Paul Graham on, on the same line was talking all this stuff about resistance and resistance movements and, and whatever else have you. I think you cannot <laughs> have it both ways. You cannot, on the one hand, think that Trump is a grave and unique threat to democracy and the world at large, and at the same time um, be business partners with one of the key members of his team. Like, that is completely incompatible. It's like Winston Churchill saying, like, Hitler's the worst thing ever, and by the way, uh, Goebbels and me are just going to uh, go play tennis after tea. What? Are you kidding me? That's just not compatible through your own choosing. If they had not been on the drums about Trump being this unique, dangerous evil, um, then fine. Do whatever you want. Just don't talk out both sides of your mouth. And so you feel the hypocrisy was a problem there. But what, is, is it also a problem that Peter Thiel was a part-time partner? If it, was, if it was a staff member of theirs, is it less of an issue? I mean, how does a company you know, deal with the diversity of opinions to elected leaders or, or president-elect? It is actually quite a difficult issue. 
Yes, if you see it in the abstract and if you equate all sorts of support with just support in general, then perhaps it's hard and abstract. It's not so hard and abstract in this case. Peter Thiel is the single largest donor to the Trump campaign, or at least was when he donated more than a uh, million dollars to to the campaign at a critical time just after Trump had been um, outed as uh, Mr. Pussy Grabber. Um, so not only did, did Thiel double down on his support after Trump had been shown uh, as, as in one of his more vile moments, um, he was also a keynote speaker at the uh, convention. He's now part of the transition team. He's in the inner circle. This isn't just some person who is disgruntled with politics at large and says, hey, fuck it, I'm going to vote for Trump, or even goes to a Trump rally or whatever else have you. This is a key member of the Trump team. So I don't think it's really fair to equate um, some average employee that might hold a certain political view with a billionaire that's uh, spending millions of dollars on the Trump uh, campaign as part of the inner circle of the team and is not even a paid employee of, um, of Y Combinator. So there was a lot of this uh, muddling of the waters to make it seem as though this discussion was about, oh, should employers persecute their employees for their political views? And of course, I think, no, they shouldn't. This isn't that at all. Uh, if we can't hold billionaires who spend millions of their money and uh, join the inner circle of Trump accountable for their actions, then, I mean, where the hell are we? What, what about Peter Thiel being a board member of Facebook? Any conflict of interest there? Huge conflict of interest. And I think that's just as bad. It, the difference, to some extent, was that uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't on the fucking barricade shouting about how Trump was this unique, dangerous evil um, every day on Twitter, right? As both Saul, uh, Sam Altman and, and Paul Graham were. So... The stench of hypocrisy was just so great in those two cases that I thought, hey, here's an easy place to start. Like if we can't even get people who, who as I said, view Trump as this unique, dangerous uh, element to democracy in the world to disengage from their billionaire partners um, who, according to themselves, are only come in a few hours a week to do part-time work, like then truly – um, you guys are willing to sacrifice nothing for what you believe. David, I could talk to you for ages, but I know time's ticking along. And uh, just just one more question. I know you had a, a core Q&A recently. I read through some of those answers and you you said that uh, B2B SaaS is, is only in the early stages of evolution. Um, if someone's listening to this podcast, they want to take the base camp route of just, you know, sidestepping VC and the complexities and the hype and everything. What are some tips for, for someone that's maybe in their early 20s, maybe is a coder, maybe is not a coder, you know, after a nice sustainable business and quite potentially open to the, the sanity of the B2B space as opposed to the consumer um, craziness? Sure. So I think first of all is that you must educate yourself and train yourself to become a builder. If you want to build something sustainable and not take other people's money, that means you have to build it yourself. So you have to teach yourself a skill, whether that's programming or design or anything else that is core and essential to, to starting a software business. And that's never been easier. That doesn't mean it's easy. 
just means it's never been easier uh, and it's never been cheaper either. There's an endless um, amount of information and tutorials and so on available for teaching yourself both programming and design. Uh, and once you then have those skills, you're able to invest the one thing that you will have a, a fair supply of that you can do it with as you please, which is your own time. So even if you maintain a full-time job or you're studying or whatever, you will have time on the side to, to start a side project. And then I encourage you to, to find some pain in either your own direct sphere of things that you touch or things you've been exposed to or friends or family or someone else who've been complaining bitterly about either some process that they're trying to do or some shitty software that they're being forced to use and start from there, start from sort of that epicenter of pain. And if you can alleviate that pain through development of software for just that one person or a small group, well, then you're on the right track. It doesn't actually take that much. The great, great thing about selling to businesses is that if you sell something that truly solves a problem for them, they're more than willing to pay for it. And you can certainly get someone to pay you $100 a month for a piece of software that, that solves a material pain for them. And you know what? You don't have to collect that many customers paying you $100 a month before all of a sudden you're making a million dollars a year, right? Like, uh, do the math on that. We're talking about just getting a few hundred customers. That is very, very different from breaking through in the consumer space where these days um, hundreds of thousands of users is nothing. You need to have uh, tens of millions, if not preferably hundreds of millions of people using your your consumer app before there is anything there, right? So there are just on completely different ends of the scale. And the end of the scale that is getting tens first and then getting hundreds and then perhaps a few thousand customers is completely achievable through your own means of personal selling, personal marketing, personally building an audience and, and personally building what it needs to, uh, what you need to build to, to sell something to people. So there's just a self-sufficiency in targeting business software that I find uniquely appealing. Well, then it also just helps that me, for me personally, I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy helping businesses become more efficient. You grew up in the lower middle class of Denmark in, in Copenhagen. Do you sometimes lie in bed at night and pinch yourself and uh, you're living in Marbella, Spain, you've got a multi-million dollar business, uh, you, you work with Jeff Bezos and uh, do, do you sometimes think, wow, this, is, this has worked out pretty well for me? I do. I mean, I'm very grateful for what uh, has happened over the past 10 years. But at the same time, more often than not, I actually don't lie in bed thinking about all the blessings I've had. I think, hey, do you know what? If I lost all this, if I lost being able to live in Mabea, if I lost being able to race cars, um, I'd still be all right. I'd still be able to do many of the things that I enjoy most in this world, including programming, which as at least as long as I have my hands and, and, and able to see and code, I, I can enjoy one of the key things that I enjoy in this world. Um, so I use actually negative visualization more, of a, more as a technique to um, sort of have fulfillment uh, and have sort of trust that even if all this should go away, even if that million dollar business should go bankrupt tomorrow through some calamity, then uh, my life will still be just fine. Fantastic. David Hanemeyer Hansen, really enjoyed chatting with you. So much to talk about. There's so, so much in my notes that I didn't even touch, but that's, that's what happens when it's a good conversation. Good luck with it all. And um, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
Thanks again for having me. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. David's such a smart guy and I, I felt I could have spoken to him for a long, long time and he's, he's come a long way from growing up in the lower middle class end of Copenhagen to leading one of, um, definitely one of the most well-known tech companies. Yeah, definitely. Um, and having Jeff Bezos invest in your, or as he said, not, not invest per se, but take a, take a stake, buy, buy out some equity in their company is a huge vote of confidence. And, and I think it's very useful having people like um, himself, David, and his uh, business partner, Jason Fried from Basecamp, that are trying to push another narrative around tech startups because there is this really loud narrative that dominates the press of the Silicon Valley narrative of raise money, spend a lot of money to try create a lot of money and then get an exit or list or some other liquidity event. And, you know, where it's useful that these guys are saying something else is that, you know, not everyone's got the opportunity to go to Silicon Valley or not everyone's got the pedigree to pitch to these intimidating, super smart venture capital people and saying, look, you know, people have succeeded in all variety of ways. Don't get hoodwinked by the one narrative. That being said, as usual, the truth, I believe, is in the middle somewhere. And a lot of successful companies like the Googles, like the Facebooks, like the WhatsApps have raised money from venture capital funds as well. Mm. So most successful tech companies base camps an outlier base camps not the norm and they obviously very smart guys and they were lucky enough to find the synergistic fit between them and they could create something on a shoestring that touched a nerve and um, it's but for most people to deliver that amount with just two or three or four people is hard most people have to raise money and and do it with a bit of a bigger team and a bit of a longer runway yeah, I think he mentioned too that he, he liked the idea of keeping it small and, um, you know, friendly, like not not buying themselves out, if you know what I mean, selling out. Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, it's different models and, you know, there's pros and cons and, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of business people, entrepreneurs, I should say, would like the opportunity to lead and manage even more people. Some wouldn't. Mm. Um, you know, we a smallish team of about thirteen or so. And if it's if it so happened, I wouldn't mind leading a company of a few thousand for the experience. And um, you don't I'm, think eventually you'd sort of start? I'll be intense. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't know everyone. No, you wouldn't. And I think that's that's the point. It would become tricky when you. I think probably at around, I don't know, 100 people, 80 people, um, you would it would be hard to know everyone. I think up until yeah. that point, you can probably at least know them by face and a little bit. Yeah, um, you could probably manage a couple of hundred. Like if you think about even your class in high school, there's probably about 
what, 100, 200 people and you still knew all their names. It's true. It's true. And what was interesting and to, to take the left turn, we spoke about Peter Thiel and about the conflict of interest um, that David says you know, is Peter Thiel's on the board of Facebook. When I interviewed David last Thursday, which mm. was Australia Day in Australia, the 25th, even at that stage, very, very few people, tech people, had spoken publicly about Trump. Mm. You know, Peter but Thiel, had they met with him yet? W- yes, they had. Like mm. the, so Peter Thiel was outspoken in his support for Trump and had donated money to his campaign. Trump had invited Sheryl Sandberg, um, Elon Musk, you know, the, the, the real, the top tier of tech people to New York and they met with him, but none of them really released any statements mm. as far as I can remember. So this is how fast the world moves these days. Even last Thursday when I chatted to David, which is just less than a week ago, I wasn't even sure if we should chat about it. It's, it there still seemed to be quite a clear separation of tech and politics and I think a lot of the tech leaders met with Trump because they leaders of big companies and they have to work with whatever government's in place. So, so they have mm. to, you know, work with them. The Apple, Tim Cook was there as well. And uh, obviously, David, we spoke about that. Trump and uh, David's obviously got very strong feelings about it. And then, and then on Friday, when Trump put that executive order and all hell broke loose and suddenly the tech companies, mm. suddenly the tech press became, <laughs> the tech press and the political press sort of merged Aged. into one. I know. Um, Mark Zuckerberg wrote something. Sheryl Sandberg, Mark's 2IC, wrote something. And there was a whole hoo-ha with uh, Uber getting involved inadvertently in, in yeah. with the taxis on strike and then you know uber was seen as trying to break the strike which i don't believe is really fair but long story short suddenly every single tech company under the sun is releasing a statement around diversity and immigration and it's mm. and it's amazing the difference that six days make yeah well i mean they started off you know they don't want to shoot themselves in the foot you know they've got to tread carefully because ultimately the president can make or break some of their businesses, you know. But um, eventually it sort of becomes personal and it starts to affect their employees and I think they have to speak out, they have to say something. David was one of the first to be that outspoken. I mean, I remember the Twitter fight he had with, um, you know, some of these Y Combinator guys and um, he took a very specific line yeah we'll we'll see we'll see what plays out at the end of the day you know these companies uh, have to work with and and i think it's quite hard for companies like uber and to a lesser degree google and facebook that don't only work indirectly with the government sometimes they work directly yeah oh isn't elon musk wanting to work directly with trump elon musk and Peter Thiel, I believe, are on his some board, some tech board of advisors. Mm. Um, oh, no, uh, I don't know if it's yeah, Peter Thiel, and also I think Travis Kalelnik. I think that's you pronounce his name from Uber. I think is on that okay. board as well. You know, and you can see it both ways. I mean, you know, regardless of what you think of him as a leader, um, to have influence over him surely can be a good thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately better for all the tech companies if they've got like-minded people in there advising him. Yeah, so you can see it two ways. Other people say, well, you've got to have, be principled. And But um, anyway, David 
was uh, I, I really enjoyed chatting with him. I'm, I'm hoping maybe in, in a few months we can get him back and talk. We didn't even touch upon, you know, their team is predominantly remote. David's written a book about remote work. I'm going to put a link to all his Medium articles and his books because mm-hmm. they're all really interesting. Um, yeah. I'll put them on the show notes at, uh, on show notes at itsamonkey.com. I'd like, I never got around to asking him about uh, leadership and managing in a remote team, which I think is mm. very interesting for a lot of people. Even just the process of iteration. You know, I think earlier last year they released Basecamp 3. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I know I still use Basecamp 2 because I prefer it only because I don't need all the new features. But just interesting that they've had that iteration and process and they still open up old versions as well. I think it was one of the first systems as well where you could include external customers into the system, which is really useful. So you can – it was really the first system that – I mean, I remember just – it was the first time I saw the concept of not using email as a project management tool. Let's get it out of email. And what I love about our business now – is that we don't really use email, right, internally. Hardly ever, right? It's either Slack, Yammer, Jira, Basecamp, right, between between those um, It's good to keep things in one place, uh, organized, and somewhere that everyone involved can access it. Yeah. And even people in the future that need to be involved later on, they can access it too. Anyway, that's episode 29, Done and Dusted. 79. Did I say 29? Yep. <laughs> oh, man. You know, this is what happens when you cram so much in your brain. Your brain starts Your brain starts doing, qu- doing quirky things. Episode 79. Yep. And um, go to itsamonkey.com to listen to some of the old uh, episodes. We're going to come back to you with uh, episode 80 this time next week. We love feedback. Send an email to podcast at itsamonkey.com. If you're a small business or a startup and you want to get free publicity, send us a 30-second clip about your business. We'll play it on the podcast in the Startup Minutes. But until next week, hope you are well. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And thank you very much to my co-host, Kate Frappel. See you later.